Well, take your Bible, look over to 1 John again. 1 John, I haven't looked at the the notes yet that are in the bulletin. I've titled it Obeying God. I think we're going to need this week and next week on Memorial Week, weekend. Make sure you, you reach out to people in the community, tell them to come. Somebody was telling me even this morning that they drove by here the street and saw all the people out afterward talking and said, hey, we need to go check that church out. Maybe you're here today. And, uh, but we'll be here next week on Memorial Weekend. But here, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Let me go ahead and read that for us. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you remember that account in Mark chapter 10? In Mark's gospel, it's also in Matthew's gospel excuse me, regarding the rich young ruler. I mean, if ever was anybody uh, a primo candidate for conversion and for salvation, it was the rich young ruler. I mean, just by his very name, he was rich, which would put him in certain circles that I'm sure would want to make others go after him. He was young, And so he had a bright future in front of him, and the scripture says that he was a ruler. And you remember that he came to Christ, running to Christ, bowing before Christ, on his knees before Christ, and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And you remember Jesus told him, basically gave him the second half of the commands, and he said, I've kept them all. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess, and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But you remember that that man, at that command by Christ to expose the nerve of his life, his greed, it says that he, he went away grieved. And what's amazing about Mark chapter 10 is that Christ actually let him go. Christ didn't play another stanza of just as I am. He let him go. His face fell. And so he left with the gold in his hand, but he parts with eternal life. And unless he repented, he has forever suffered, has he not? I mean, if you really just think about it, that was the, it's an understatement, the most foolish decision that anyone could ever make to hold on to their gold when they're standing in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this guy kept running. He came kneeling. He came to the right person, God in the flesh. He asked him the right question, what must I do to be saved? And he went away grieved. He went away crestfallen, if you will. He comes sincerely, but he's not saved. He was compelled by Christ, certainly. But the man is not converted. And the gospel left this enthusiastic seeker empty and void of that which he came for, namely eternal life. And as I think on that account, my concern is this, that often the gospel offered today 
is granting assurance when there is no assurance to be given. Our Lord, again, let that ruler go. I sometimes think that we naively believe that if someone comes forward, if they make a decision, if they pray a prayer, that somehow they have earnestly called on God from a pure heart. In fact, as you get into some of the evangelistic campaigns and you see the training of those campaigns, counselors are trained to assure the sinner with the authority of God's word that he or she has been saved by that decision. In fact, sometimes in that training, a warning is added to not ever doubt God by doubting your salvation. And this is happening in the scores today, all over. Walter Chantry, in his book, Today's Gospel, said that anyone who would give, speaking of the rich young ruler, this lover of riches assurance would be fighting God to tell him that his request for life had been granted because God always grants salvation to those who verbally ask would be a lie. Chantry said it would contradict Jesus' words and destroy the man's soul by giving false hope. But just such peace is being given to men, women, and children by pastors and missionaries today. End of quotes. I mean, it's possible that we need to rethink our methods. I mean, the fruit of the new birth is not, and you know this, simply come forward, but rather it's a turning from sin and a faith that follows in obedience. And that's what John's going to talk about today. We're going to address the theme of assurance. How can you really know you're saved? How can you really know that when you stand before God, you're in His kingdom? And what I want to do today is I'm not here to beat you up. You, you know that. I'm, I'm a shepherd. I'm here to love you. And I want to equip you so that as you meet people in this central valley, you're going to be able to share the word of God with them, right? Maybe that's a little different focus than me standing up here thinking, hey, I know so many of you are not saved. I don't, I don't feel that way, but I'd say if the shoe fits, you can wear it, but I'm not coming in that light. I'm coming to equip you because I think we live in a world and we live in an evangelical community that sometimes would grant assurance to the rich young ruler because he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he comes running. Imagine that. He bows down before Christ. He looks up at him and it all looks so good until Jesus put his finger on that man's Achilles, if you will, or that man's soft spot, namely his greed. Part of this kind of decisional regeneration goes back to some reading I was doing regarding a man by the name of Charles Finney. Some of you, do you know, are anybody familiar with that name? Charles Finney is a man in church history who was used as an evangelist in a, in a wide way. He was a New York lawyer. He actually had no formal theological training, but he was a very, he had a skilled logical mind, and he was converted in the year of 1821. He became a popular evangelist. He was a revivalist. He believed that salvation was a result of human choice, making a comparison to, to God's sovereignty. He believed that man could 
He believed man could make that human choice because he was not by nature depraved. In other words, Finney believed that he had a certain bent towards sin, but it was not his constitution, and so man had the ability within him to choose what is right. And so Finney then determined that since man can do what is right, and since he is not innately depraved, then, then what you had to do was work, in Finney's mind, on the will of man. And if you could activate the will of man or motivate the will of man, he would make the right choice. And you could almost use any legitimate or even illegitimate means, including, in Finney's mind, manipulation and emotion. So he developed in his evangelistic campaigns what was known as the anxious bench. And as he began to preach, he began to call people forward. In fact, Finney became known for the anxious bench. And in that time, in, in that time before, even Finney, in the years of the Great Awakening of Whitfield and Edwards, no such thing was ever done. But Finney began to call people forward to that thought of the anxious bench, and it later became known in Methodism as the altar. And then people actually became the objective. And as the preacher came to the conclusion, he began to call people forward because people wanted to see something visible since the invisible work of regeneration could not be seen. And so he would draw his messages to a close. He was very persuasive. And, and, and people, the response to his persuasive powers was great. People came to the anxious bend. He was so successful that people were reluctant to say anything against him, fearing that they might be saying something against who? The Holy Spirit. Well, hey, you don't, you don't want to pick on Finney. I mean, you might be picking on God's anointed. But as you went behind the scenes to check into what was left after Finney did his work, his workers couldn't help realize the small number of converts who actually remained faithful to his challenge to come forward. In fact, in a letter written to Finney in the year of 1834, James Boyle asked this question, quote, Let us look over the fields where you others and I have labored as ministers, and what is now their moral state? What was their state within three months after we left them? I have visited many of these fields and groaned in spirit to see the fr sad, frigid, carnal state into which the churches had fallen and fallen soon after we had first departed among them. End of quotes. In other words, as they begin to follow up, they begin to see that all the people that came forward to the anxious bench were somehow not following the Lord at all. Now, we have that problem today. Some people say the, the problem is actually following up these people who become committed to Christ. And I think, no, not really. Uh, Ray Comfort, some of you who are familiar with in the way of the master, said that at a 1990 crusade in the U.S., this is typical, you'll find out, 600 decisions for Christ were obtained. I don't think it was his crusade. He's commenting on a crusade in 90 where 600 people came forward. There was much rejoicing. However, 90 days later, 90 days later, follow-up workers couldn't even find one who was continuing in his or her faith. Now, now my question to you young people, what do you do with that? I mean, somebody makes a decision, but... 90 days later, 
out of the 600, they can't find one seeking the Lord. In Cleveland, one outreach brought 400 decisions. The rejoicing tapered off, though, when workers involved in a follow-up campaign couldn't find one single convert of the 400 who had supposedly made a decision. Where'd they go? Charles Hackett, who's a national director for the Assemblies of God in the United States, said this. He said, a soul at the altar does not generate much excitement in some circles because we realize, here's what he said, that approximately 95 out of 100 will not become integrated into the church. Now, now I'm asking you, what gives assurance? I mean, at what level can you tell somebody, here's where assurance lies? In his book, Today's Evangelism, Ernest Reisinger said of one outreach event, quote, it lasted eight days and there were 68 supposed conversions. A month later, not one of the converts could be found, end of quote. I mean, where'd they go? I'm thinking of the, <laughs> the Christian high school I went to. I mean, what happened? I mean, there, there's, a, I don't know, 110 of us in my class, and we're at Bible class and in chapel at Los Angeles Baptist High School. But I'm telling you, when I went to that 20-year reunion, woo! You understand what I'm saying? See, in 1991, there was an evangelistic campaign in Salt Lake City. And um, those who were involved in that said that less, quote, than 5% of those who responded to an altar call during the public crusade are living a Christian life one year later. In other words, more than 95%, I supposed, would be proved false converts. And, you know, and I know this happens. A pastor in Boulder, Colorado, sent a team to Russia in 1991. He obtained through this ministry 2,500 decisions. The next year, the team came back, and they found that only 30 were continuing in their faith. That's a retention rate of 1.2%. So I, I think, you know, when you think of the anxious bench, it's here. In fact, churches in Texas, they always do things big, don't they? They came together, and at this one convention saw 30 thousand decisions six months later the follow-up committee found only 30 still in their faith and what i mean how does someone actually know they're saved or gain insurance in sacramento california not far from here a crusade yielded more than 2,000 commitments one church followed up on 52 of those decisions and couldn't find amongst the 52 one convert. I mean, what do you do with this? I'm just talking with you here, okay? Because you're going to be meeting people, and you're going to be interacting with people, and I'm probably making you feel a little uncomfortable right now, but I want to teach you, what does the Scripture say about this? In fact, a leading U.S. denomination reported that during 1995, okay, it's a denomination, they secured 384,000 decisions. But out of those 384 thousand decisions they retained roughly twenty-two thousand in the fellowship 
Meaning this, if you probably won't get the statistic, they couldn't account for 361,000 conversions. If I put it in our terms, that's a 94% fallaway rate. What do you do with this kind of stuff? What do, you, what do you do with what Pastor Dennis Grinnell from New Zealand, who traveled extensively in India every year since 1980, reported that he had 80,000 decision cards stacked in a hut in the city of Rajamundri, results of past evangelistic crusades. But Dennis Grinnell said that he maintained that one would be fortunate to even find 80 Christians in the entire city. I mean, what does the Bible say on this subject? And I'm asking you, is it possible to have assurance of your salvation? And our answer from the scripture would be categorically what? Yes. I mean, let's look over at 1 John for a second. John says, you can know. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. He wrote that we would know. So my desire isn't to send you away necessarily. Say, boy, I just, I don't know. I, I want to give you the truth. If you need to look in and examine your own life, then please do so. But assurance of salvation is John's theme. Now, as you look back to 1 John chapter 1, We've been developing that argument after he, he dealt with the person and the work and the doctrine of Christ in 1 through 4, that from 1, 5, all the way down, and we'll just take it to 2, 6, okay, John, John has given us, and we are examining four affirmations to know that you are in fellowship with God and that you can ha and have real assurance. So well, how can I know? Well, the Bible's going to tell you how we could know. You say, well, how could I really be sure? I don't want to be wrong at that point. No, you don't want to be wrong at that point. Well, the Bible's going to help us. And John wrote this book so that he set it up, if you will, by a series of tests by which we can look at our life and see if we have this assurance that he has spoken about. Now, true fellowship here precedes 1-5 was so key from the nature of God who is light. And because God is light, his character has conditions that make fellowship possible. And the fundamental question that we've been asking in the past weeks is, is your lifestyle consistent with the declaration that God is light? Now, we've looked thus far at the first three affirmations to enable you to understand what is right and who is true. And you remember those. I think they're there on your outline. We said that true fellowship with God is walking in the light. Remember that? In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He said true fellowship with God is walking in the light. He, he contrasted, does he not, with walking in the darkness. People who live in perpetual darkness. People who have no desire for holiness or no desire for purity. But a believer, this man or this woman, gains that assurance by ever walking 
towards the light, walking towards purity, walking towards holiness, walking towards the light. God is light, and He is holy in all that He does. And as we walk towards that light, the amazing principle is there is that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So he noted that, number one, true fellowship with God is walking in the light. Secondly, true fellowship with God is confessing our sin. That's encouraging, isn't it? Because the closer we get to God, the more sin we see. And the false teachers were actually saying in 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But here is the mark of assurance, is your confession of your sin. The mark of assurance is not a perfect life. The mark of assurance is not sinless perfection. The mark of assurance is when you're confronted with your own life, you see so much sin. And when you see that sin, you confess that sin and agree with God about that sin. And as a result of that, God Almighty forgives you your sin. He lets go of your sin. So here's what John is saying. Listen, he's not saying that you make a decision. John's talking about a present tense walking. John is talking about a present tense confessing. I mean, maybe some of you young moms just say, oh, I just, sometimes I get angry with my children or I speak harshly with my children. I see so many things in my own life that sometimes seem so inconsistent. And you say, well, I begin to confess that sin so that I could be a righteous mother to them, so that I could walk in the Spirit, so that I could develop a quiet... Listen, that's a sign of assurance, is it not? It's when you see the imperfections of your life that you confess them. But then thirdly, we noted that true fellowship with God is recognizing our sin. Remember, they said in verse 10 of chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so John goes on, my children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so here's a recognition of our sin. You say, well, Scott, that's I I get that. I live that way. See, I think what John is opposing here is antinomianism in the church. By that, I mean people living without a law. See, people who express they say they know God, but continually live in the darkness, continually don't see their sin, continually don't recognize their sin, don't see a need of the Savior, those are people whose John is warning about. But if you're in the flock and you're thinking, man, pastor, I sin all the time. Pastor, I sin every day. Pastor, I have to confess my sin every day. And you begin to have doubts come in your heart, I'd actually say, no, look at it in the reverse way. Those are all signs of assurance. Those are all signs of a heart that's been transformed, that wants to please God, but can't do it perfectly. So those were the first three. Here's the fourth affirmation. We come to yet another assurance to verify if we're walking in the light and have fellowship with God. It's this, that true fellowship with God is obeying His commandments obeying his commandments and so let me put this in our theme assurance lies in our obedience if you're a believer and you want assurance and you're living in sin you're not going to have assurance okay now 
to say the least, at the worst, you'd wonder if it was so often and so long and so continual if you know the Lord. But assurance lies in our obedience. Now, look what John does here. Let's dive into the text. Look at the truth declared. The truth declared in verse 3. He said, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his, what? His commandments. The issue here, as in the previous section, listen, there's no, there's no, you know, uh, there's no, uh, it's a simple way to say it, but I don't want you to miss it. The issue here is not what one claims, you know this, and not what one says. It is not even what one knows, but whether or not one obeys God. If not, the claim is indeed false or bogus. So John begins by stating this truth. Look at it again in verse 3. He says, and by this we know. Stop there. I want you to understand he doesn't say by this we kind of hope sort of to know. Or by this we kind of hope this is true. No, he says with certainty here, by this we know. In other words, here is how you could know you're really in fellowship with God and have assurance of salvation. It involves here before us a test of obedience. So you could know by walking in the light, by confessing your sin, by recognizing your sin here, by obeying his commands. Now remember uh, in the month of March as we started the book, I noted that while subjective assurance of salvation comes does it not? Through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, we call that subjective. Here, the test of obedience provides objective assurance that one is genuinely saved. In other words, obedience is the external, visible proof of salvation. Now look how he unpacks this. Again, look at 2.3. He says, by this we know. And he uses the Greek word there. There's different Greek words. This is the word for know. It's gnosko. And gnosko means to know by observation. It's to know, if you will, by objective acts. You know something by observation is what he's talking about. It's the word used in verse 3. It's the word used in verse 5. John uses gnosko 25 separate times in 1 John alone. Sometimes he uses another Greek word for no called oida, and I'll explain that one down the line. But when John uses this phrase here in 2-3, when he says, and by this we know, he's talking about where we know something to be the case. And here he's talking about the doctrine of salvation. By this we know, we've come to know him, verse 3, if we keep his commandments. Look again at verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. In other words, he keeps his word, he keeps his commandments, and by this we know because you could see that is the thought objectively. In fact, there's many other places where this word is used. Look later in that same chapter at verse 29. 
That would be 1 John 2, 29. He says there, speaking of Christ, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of, in, born of again, or born of him. He uses that word, no. If you look down in um, chapter 3, look at it again. In verse 19, John writes real black and white. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and we are sure our heart before him. Where he says there in verse 18, little children, let us love in word. Or let us not love in word or talk. He says in 18, but indeed in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and assure our heart. It's when we don't just verbalize it. It's when we live it. And you have these other instances of this. Look down at verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, here it is again, we know that he abides in us. How do you know that? By keeping his commandments. And so look back again at the text in 1 John 2, 3. He says, by this we know, just continue in that, that we've come to know him. Stop there. We, what do we know, John? Well, we've come to know him. And I think here, that is to know God personally. Here's how we can know we know God personally. Here's how we can know God and fellowship with him. Here's how we can know God and share life with him. And I would add this, that to know God is to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. And to know Christ is to know God. So John's just building his argument. And we can ask this question. How do we know then that we've come to know him? Look at the text again in 1 John 2, 3. If we keep his, what? Commandments. In other words, a condition is set forth to test if one truly knows God. Now, you remember here in the background, the Gnostic teachers highlighted what, what we would call just superior knowledge. And they claimed to possess this superior knowledge. They kind of claimed that they had a secret in with God and that salvation for them was elevated by this secret knowledge and therefore they knew God. It was kind of a mystical knowledge. And the Gnostics, these false teachers, believed they could unlock the mysteries of both the known world and the unknown world, and they considered themselves to be the enlightened ones, and they pursued intellectual knowledge, though, at the expense of obeying that truth morally. But what John does here is he describes that where true knowledge of God is discovered, here's the principle, it will lead to a life of obedience. And, and one thing I just want you to note here, okay, when it says, if we keep his commandments, okay, or if it says if in verse 3, by this we know we have come to know him, they're all in the present tense. In other words, what John is describing is not a past decision. He's always describing the present tense with continuing results. Here's how you truly know you are in him even today, as it says there, if you know him as you keep his commandments. Now, Look at that little phrase. Let's just talk about it. If we keep his, because I want you to understand the book, right? 
That's why I'm always sticking your nose back in the book, right? I, I, it doesn't really matter what I say. What matters is that when you go home, you can read your Bible. And that's why words matter to me. So let, let, look at it again. This is how you come to know him. If we keep, it says, his commandments. Now, uh, when you think of commandments, I think sometimes we think of God's law. Certainly it is. As summarized in the Ten Commandments. It is that. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, you can hang all the law and the prophets on the two great, what? Commandments. Love God and love people. But very interesting here, the word is not in reference to the Mosaic law. It's actually in reference to the commands given, listen, by Jesus Christ. So look at it this way. It says this, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep the commandments of Jesus Christ. Now obviously Jesus Christ is affirming the law. He came not to abolish it, but to what? But to fulfill it. But here he's after the commandments of Christ. Let me show you. Just look over in 1 John chapter 3 there. Look what it says there. It says in 3.21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He, what? Commanded us. So it's the commandments of Christ. He commanded us. Look again at chapter 4. Look at verse 21. And this commandment we have from him. Okay? Whoever loves God must also love his brother. We got that commandment from him. So God commands that we believe his son Jesus Christ and do what he commands. I'm thinking of Matthew 28. Remember when Jesus said at the Great Commission to teach them to observe all things that I have, what? Commanded. Now, naturally, what our Lord taught was revealed in the law. But let me just say this. The implications here are staggering for every religion of the world, okay? Let me put it this way. The one who obeys... The commandments of Jesus Christ is the one who truly knows God. It's quite a statement that John's making here. It's not a matter of what you say. It's not a matter of what you verbalize. It's not a decision that you've made 30 years ago. Okay, It actually is bound up in this in 1 John 2, 3, where it says we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, that word there in 2, 3, keep, very important. Words matter again. It doesn't, it, it's the idea here of watchful observance, okay? It's also translated guard, so that it would mean to guard the commandments or to, to keep the commandments. And to keep, again, is in the present tense, conveying believers in genuine fellowship are continually watching, continually guarding the commandments because you esteem the commandments of God. Here's the mark of a true believer. 
you guard the commandments of God like a treasure. Okay? So for Johnny here in the scripture, knowledge is not merely intellectual. It's not even speculative. It is truth that leads to an obedient life. Ah, it just popped into my mind. Maybe it's appropriate. I don't know. Thinking about that funeral. Did I tell you about that funeral I went to a long time ago, about 20 years ago, where the man was a Catholic? Maybe I didn't. I, I, it was a friend of mine. He was on my staff at a church. And his dad was, was Catholic. Okay, And I want to I be sincere in telling this. Okay, This is a friend of mine. I love him. And his dad had died. I knew his dad, and, and um, his dad was, was what I would call just a full pagan man, okay? I mean, if there was any man that was a pagan, he was as pagan as all could get out. So I went into the funeral, and I told my friend I'd go. It was a Catholic funeral. So in he comes, and all the incense is going, and within 30 seconds of the priest opening his mouth, I almost wanted to get up and yell. Because he stepped up and said something like this. We thank the Lord that so-and-so is in heaven. And we know that you have taken him into heaven because of his what? Why was he taken into heaven in the Catholic Church? You know why? What would they lean on? Think about it. It, it. Because of his, starts with a B, his baptism. And I'm sitting there, I wanted to come out of my chair. I mean, this guy's over 70, and he lived however he wanted to live, did whatever he wanted to do with whomever he wanted to do it, and that priest, out of his mouth, just granted that man eternal forgiveness and heaven because of a ceremony 70 years earlier when he was sprinkled? That's not what the Bible says, is it? You understand? What we're talking about is how do you get assurance? You get assurance this way. When you obey his commandments, when you keep his, his commandments. Listen, there is a world of difference between the one who claims conversion and that is disconnected from an obedient lifestyle and the believer who guards and keeps the truth as a continuing pattern of life. So I'm trying to help you when you go into your high school. And everybody's claiming they're in Christ, but few are living like it, you understand? John's just going to say, listen, here's how you know. Here's how you gnosko. Here's how you know by observation. He's not talking, is the Bible, about a ceremony. He's talking about a pursuit of your life. Okay, He's talking about a pattern of your life. Now listen, listen, listen. Certainly, you'll know this. John's not talking about sinless perfection, is he? You say, because maybe as I'm preaching this, you're thinking, oh, maybe I'm not obedient enough. No, he's already said, you're assured when you're confessing your sin. You're assured when you're recognizing your sin. But all he's saying here is he's building his argument as that as you're confessing, as you're recognizing, as you're coming closer to the light, 
There also is in your heart a keeping, a guarding, a treasuring of the commandments of God. And again, not only is this word here, keep his commandments in the present tense, but it's the word that places emphasis on the continuing results of knowing God and knowing his son, Jesus Christ. You keep walking with him. I mean, don't you ever feel like sometimes when Jesus said to the disciples, do you, John 6, do you also want to go away? And was it Peter who said, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of what? Eternal life. Here's where assurance lies. Listen, I can't look into anybody's heart here any more than you can't, any more than I can look into somebody's heart out in our community. But as you begin to talk with people, as you begin to interact with them, and as you begin to be built up in the faith, you want to make sure that what accompanies insurance and what the building blocks are is this. I I was at a guy's farm the other day, and, um, you know, I just was blown away. I was blown away by all the infrastructure to get this fruit to come alive. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an L.A. dude, right? I mean, I just, I'm like new around all this stuff, and I like it. I'm learning all the time, but I'm just looking at all the infrastructure that goes in, all the groundwork that goes in, and then the chute that goes in, and then the post that comes in, and then the irrigation that comes in. I mean, it's amazing to me. There's infrastructure to it. Listen, how do you build the doctrine of assurance? Let me just say this. Not on a decision. You build the doctrine on the assurance is this. Is my life walking in the truth? And as I'm walking in the truth, you're seeing more of your sin. So our body ought to be like this. You ought to not feel like you're perfect. You ought to be with one another to say, man, I, I see this sin in my life. I, I see pride in my life. And you're talking brother to brother, sister to sister, because we're not perfect. And you realize that as you even confess your sin, that's a mark of assurance? Because someone who's outside of the Christian community would never desire to walk in the light, never even care about confessing their sin. Like that guy I played basketball with, I think I've shared that with you, many years ago on my basketball team, who thought nothing of having an immoral relationship with a girl that he was dating. I think I told you that. I came and confronted him. And um, he, now this guy said he was a Christian, okay? He said he was a Christian. So I, if, if he didn't say he was a Christian, I'd probably just give him the gospel, right? But I know he's going down to this certain church. And I, I said, hey, brother, you're, you're impure with that girl, aren't you? I can hear the locker room talk. And um, I said, how do, you, how do you deal with that? And, and remember his response with, to me was, I said, if you're a Christian, how do you conduct yourself in impurity that way and yet still call yourself a Christian? Remember, he's the guy that says, I just do it, and then I confess my sin. I thought, wow. You walk an aisle, pray a prayer, go on Sunday, but somehow, I said, aren't you convicted by that? Yeah, I'm convicted, but I don't know if I'll change. Now listen, I'm still telling you, do I know where his heart is? No. Could I see if he's really one of God's elect? No. But I'll tell you this, I could never grant that man what? Assurance. I said, brother, you better get serious here. You better look in the scripture. You better make sure you examine your life to see whether you really be in the faith. But listen, if you're not continually obeying the Lord and just wanting to please him, even though you're falling short, then John says, here's one of the pillars. You've got to obey him, okay? 
You say, how can you have assurance? Well, only in obeying God. It's not the person who claims to know God or claims to be born again that truly has salvation or assurance. It's the one who obeys the commandments of God. Do you know I've told people, you know one of the reasons why I know I'm a Christian? This may sound different to you, but it's not because of all the righteous things I do. Not in any way. I think I know I'm a Christian in my spirit because when I sin, do you just ever just feel convicted by the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit's just convicting you more and more. Scott, you're selfish here. Scott, you're prideful here. Scott, you don't think like Christ here. It's that inner witness of the Spirit. But then that inner witness comes out and makes my life want to pattern his Certainly not in perfection, but it's the conviction. And I really think what John's getting at here is the people in his community and and maybe ours at large who think it's just a decision. Just bring your kids to to Sunday school, but somehow they've walked away from it. And I, I say that softly because maybe as I'm preaching, some of you are thinking about your children and some of you are thinking about your grandchildren. Pray for them. Talk with them on these scriptures. Show them the word. What's more precious than your children? What's more precious than your grandchildren? Say, but pastor, I know that when they were little, they had made a commitment. Listen, I don't want to be rude. You know, maybe they know, but listen, could they get away from the Lord? I I, I suppose. But for how long? Is it their pattern to walk in the light? Is it their pattern to see, recognize, confess sin? Is it their pattern, not with perfection, but a desire to want to please them? That, that's, that's where assurance lies. And again, this doesn't mean we're perfect. This is a promise of God in the heart of a child of God that desires to honor Christ from a heart of gratitude. Listen, don't you just want to obey him? Is that true? I mean, do you ever just get around the people of God? I just spent some days with my wife in Monterey, and we were around the people of God, and they're from Hickman. Do you guys know where Hickman is? Help me understand why they call them. What do you do? They say, I'm an almond farmer. I said, you mean you're an almond farmer? No, I'm an almond. Are those the same? Yeah, those are the same things. Okay, so I'm still learning the lingo, lingo, but we were just singing together and just fellowshipping together around the body of Christ, that's where I long to be. Isn't that where you long to be? You say, well, Scott, I long to be there, but I see so many things in my life. Listen, that's a good sign of assurance. The fact that you see sin and you're still rooting it out and you still want to become more like Christ and you want your next years of life to be more focused on the filling of the Spirit than now, those are all signs. In fact, look at 1 John 3. And we're going to touch on this all over the book. He kind of gets repetitive. You'll find it. He says in 322, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we, what? Keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That's the heart of a believer. You say, perfection, Scott? No, but you want to keep them. And when you don't keep them, you, you confess that you don't. Look at 1 John 5, 2. He says this with that gnosis again, gnosko, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey what? His commandments. I love the next phrase. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not what? Burdensome. I, I mean, they're not burdensome. They're a joy to follow. 
They're just a joy to follow because you realize he's going to bless your life. Look over in the Gospel of John for a moment. Certainly your mind is going there. Look at John 14, of course. This is the Apostle John Gospel. And you know he made statements like this all over. Okay, And these here are the statements of Christ. Um, in John, you know these, 14, chapter 14, verse 15, where he says, If you love me, you will keep my, what? Commandments. Verse 21, chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who, what? Loves me. Is he talking about perfection? No. You just keep them, you guard them, you treasure them, you, you, you confess your sin. Look at John 14, 23. He's, Jesus answered him and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep what? My word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So even though they're the commandments of Christ, those commandments come to him from God the Father to us. This is the principle. Look over at John chapter 15 in verse 10, that great section on abiding in Christ. If you keep my commandments in 1510, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I, what, command you. So listen, Grace Church of the Valley, here's the truth declared. It's this, a lifestyle that desires to keep the commandments of God in Christ Jesus is an affirmation that our salvation has been wrought by God. But go back to 1 John. He doesn't just declare a truth to us. He also denounces a heresy. Would you look at that? We're almost done. Look at the heresy he denounces in verse 4. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? liar, and the truth is not in him. And again, he's getting at that verbalization there. Whoever says, I know, and they're saying, I know him. I know him just right now. There's people you'll meet this week. I know him. You, it may even be you. I, I, I know him. But, John says, does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. You know, to not obey God's truth all the while you claim to know God is to be phony and to be self-deceived. Have you ever been deceived before? I mean, I've been deceived. One time, did I tell you about that time I went to buy the necklace for my girlfriend? Did I share that story yet? I'm a young man. I'm not even married. I'm not even engaged. But I'm dating this hot woman, Patty Ross. She's back there. She's probably lowering her head now. And I'm going in at Christmas time to an automotive store, okay? And I had not got her a gift by that time. She's my girlfriend. But I wouldn't be denied. I'm still about five or six days out. And so I'm walking into an automotive store because I had to fix something for my car. And as I'm walking into the store, this car pulls up about 20 feet from me and goes, and, and it looked like, in my terminology, like a gangbanger car. 
it was low, and the guy called me over to the window, and I was probably naive at that time. And so I, I go, you talking to me? You, my man, come here. I, I kind of looked behind me. Yeah, you, come here. And so I came over to the car, which was kind of dumb, because he just could have pulled out a sawed-off shotgun, boom, you know, and just clocked me. He goes, have you bought that woman a special gift yet? I said, as a matter of fact, no. I said, I haven't. And he's got in his lap of this lowrider car uh, a newspaper, the Fresno Beat. No, it probably wasn't. It was a newspaper, though. And I'm like, I didn't know what he had under it. He goes, I got something for you, my man. I go, you do? And then he opened it, and it was jewelry, okay? And I went, wow, wow. He goes, this stuff is pure gold, my man. He goes, have you gotten your girlfriend any? No, I haven't. You, you're right. You got me. I, I'm just, I'm going in to change my oil, you know, and you, and he's showing me this, and, and he shows me this bracelet, then he shows me this necklace, and then he, he, he and then he, I, I said, how much is that one? He goes, oh, that's $250. I said, oh, I said, I don't have very much money in my pocket. Um, that, that's, that, he goes, well, if you can't buy this one, how about this one? And he shows me, now, ladies, you're going to understand this. I didn't know it. I'm guessing I'm probably 20 at the time. He shows me this 14-carat necklace that was probably like a half an inch thick. Now, I'm thinking, how much would that be worth, ladies? A lot of money. He goes, he goes for you, my man, 80 bucks. I go, wow. I said, is that genuine? He says, that's genuine. I said, dude. I said, I don't have 80 bucks. He says, how much do you have? And so I reached into my pocket and I pulled out 25 bucks. He goes, sold for you, my man. So I said, you're going to give me that for 25 bucks? I'm thinking, man, this is like a $300 necklace. Now, young man, I, I didn't just take that home and wrap it. No way, I'm smarter than the average dog. So I get in my car and I go back to the Northridge Mall. And I walk into this store called Zales, okay? Zales. And I want, I want to see if it's real, right? I mean, I'm not just going to give that to her and have it turn green on her neck, right? So I come into Zales, and I'm starting to pull the necklace out of my pocket. The lady's there. You know, the lights are coming down. The black velvet is there. I said, I wanted to see if this is real, you know. And before I could get the necklace halfway out of my pocket, she said, no, that's fake, along with the other 50 that have come in today. I said, this is not the real thing. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is a cheap imitation. This is a phony sham she goes come here and she got one of those like lights under you know those eyeball things you know and i looked on it she goes you could see how this is made here she said if your girlfriend wears this it will turn green on her neck in two weeks oh man so you say well what did you do with that necklace for christmas i did the next best thing i gave it to my sister okay <laughs> so that's what i did i gave tracy here's this gold necklace you know and so, Patty, you probably never knew about that because you never saw that, you know. But you know what I had? I had the cheap imitation phony version. But can you imagine on a serious note to stand before Jesus Christ thinking you got the real thing and for some 
for, and, it's, and, and out of the mouth, out of his mouth comes the words, I never, what, knew you. And somebody would have said, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not perform demons in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say, I declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, you don't want to get this wrong. So you just take inventory of your life. Do you desire to walk in the light? Do you, do you confess your sin? You know, I just would tell you, you might see me up here, but you know, I, in my humanness, I'm just a weak man. So I have to preach yesterday in the morning in Monterey. I just got nothing in me. I, Lord, you just got to help me. Lord, I just beg, but I'm, I'm learning to plead with him more and more, right? But you just, and I think even that's a sign I can't do it on my own. But I want to, I want to please him. I, I want to obey him, and I, I want to honor him, and I don't have the, my own strength. And so he begins to help me. Listen, as you evaluate your life, do you have that assurance? We'll pick it up next week and look in these truths. You bring someone with you next week. Let's bow our head. Just as you bow your head, thank you for sitting so patiently under the word of God. Listen, ladies, do you know that Jesus died for all your sins? Do you have that assurance, moms, grandmas? Maybe you say in your heart, oh, pastor, I'm not what I should be. Oh, no, but he's working on you. But pastor, I, I want to please him. I don't do it, per, but I want to. Listen, just the fact that you want to and that you're seeking and that you're changing and you're transforming and you're different than you were five years ago, those are all signs. I want to assure your heart this morning. You say, oh, pastor, I don't love the scripture like I want to, but even that is a desire that you want to know him even more. L listen, we've not arrived, but if you look in your heart and you say, listen, I know God saved me because he changed my heart then listen, that's biblical grounds of assurance. I suppose maybe there could be some in here who have never bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then I hold forth the gospel to you even this day. There's hope right now. Open your hand, confess your sin, confess his death, his resurrection, repent of your sin, and come to Christ.